Welcome to We Are Scared, the podcast where we dissect and dismember your favorite horror movies. Let's go, girls. Hi. Good good day to everyone. Hello. Welcome. Welcome. This is our last episode. Of the season. Finale. <laughs> season finale. Season one finale. And it's a great, if I may say so, it's a great finale it is it's an excellent it's the meta the meta Mm. of the slasher era love that word so much yeah i know you do (laughs) (laughs) um well hey guys (laughs) why are you scared this week i've really wanted to get a tattoo for a long time and i feel like i'm finally coming up to a place where i would like to make a request with an artist to get one done i am still i'm realizing that like the reason it's taken me so long is I think I have an issue, I have a fear of permanence and I also have a fear of like something that is permanent that I have to live with. I know you can get a tattoo removed and all of that, but I think that's my, that's my fear. I have a fear of permanence and I am going to get a tattoo. That's exciting though. I feel like that's a good way to move, to process a permanence fear. I at one point thought tattoos thought of tattoos as a lesson in saying like the version that I am today respects the version of me that I was when I chose Mm. to get this tattoo and I would like this to be an exercise in that I have a fear that I will not fulfill that (laughs) journey in getting the tattoo but I'm I'm going to hold out hope I feel like I'm scared of actually so many things right now First is I'm having a lot of recurring dreams about cockroaches in my apartment. Oof. And last night there was a flying cockroach oh, in my bathroom. Oh, God. Wait. In, oh, in the dream? In the dream. In the dream. In oh, the dream. my God. Sorry. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> in my nightmare. What Kiara in the bed? <laughs> so you, you didn't see him flying around in the bathroom now? No, in my dream. In my dream. But, yeah, then I'll have other... And it's always in the bathroom because that's where I have... Can, we, can I just Sorry. say... <laughs> Your expression of this fear of cockroaches has made me afraid of going into your pond room without you because I'm like, I cannot handle this the way Camille can. And if I go in there without her and one just emerges and I'm on the toilet, I'm just going to be like, Camille! Yeah, no, I will always come in and save you no matter what's happening in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Don't even worry about that. But yeah, I'm sorry that we do this here and there that it's possible. I apologize. For no, it's okay. It's okay. It's funny. Funny. Similar to your fear, Camille, I did some um, late season spring cleaning this weekend, including going through all of my products and throwing away the products that are no longer usable. I dumped everything into my bathtub and. Um, I the nicest facial product I've ever purchased was the Sunday Riley Good Jeans. I used like all of it years ago, and then in my last apartment, I picked it up at one point and was like, "Oh my god, it's so much heavier than it was!" And I was like, "Oh, awesome! <laughs> the product must have expanded." <laughs> and I continued to use <laughs> I continued to Science. use it on my face, and then when I picked it up yesterday, when I was trying to throw things away, I just got the intrusive thought of like, what if it's a bunch of bugs in there? Like, what if it's a bunch of maggots or leeches or something living in there? Because it's a much heavier than it was when I used all of it. And it <laughs> was like a Schrodinger's cat situation where I was like, I actually really don't want to know what I've been putting on my face. But in my mind, it's definitely bugs in there. So I threw it away. I didn't look. So now, though, 
I've chosen to fully believe that there was something horrible in that tube that I wasn't aware of and no one can disprove me. And so I'm just going to believe that I was putting maggot juice on my face for months for no reason. I don't think I've ever heard of bugs getting into and reproducing some sort of face cream place. Why would it get so much heavier all of a sudden? I thought that it was because the product like melted and shifted around so the weight distribution was different, but it's it was market. It's market. Are you sure that it was heavier? Are you sure that it was I, like, also just... used all of it. I feel like you maybe had... Maybe did you get two and then you forgot about one? No, because it, this was like a... Spe- they had never released a size this big. It was like 3.4 ounces. It was for a like, Christmas thing. And they only did it once. It was really expensive, so I only got one. Maybe you used less than you thought. Yeah. Well, but the thing is, none of you are going to be able to convince me that it wasn't maggots, <laughs> yeah. and I threw it away, so we'll never know. This so is... my fear is what my own mind does to me. Mm. I choose to believe the worst, and then I don't allow myself to gather evidence in the contrary. I am just beyond thrilled and honored to introduce the lead of our conversation this week, Camille. She walks us through a wonderful conversation on Scream, which also is one of her favorite movies. It is such a delight to hear Camille talk about her favorite things because she has an unparalleled enthusiasm and commitment to the things that she loves. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation about Scream. Here's Camille. I'm so excited to introduce our final episode of season one of We Are Scared. This is such a great conversation. Um, You can get a prize if you count how many times we collectively say meta and postmodern. Yeah, welcome to our last episode. Um, We're talking about Scream. 1996 one of the best movies I think to ever exist and we have a pretty detailed and long conversation for you this week so we hope you'll stick around for the whole thing and uh yeah here here we go I'm so excited to talk about Scream I don't want to speak for all of us but I think that Scream is amazing it's one of my favorite movies ever it's probably one of my top three in my top three horror movies ever whoa yeah i want to do some scene setting a little bit some facts to situate it within time of america within the podcast within the other films that we've talked about but just some numbers for everyone this scream came out in December of 1996. We're jumping ahead a few years, but Candyman was also the early 90s, so we're still in the 90s. Um, the budget was 15 million, which was pretty low for the time, and also for a movie like this, which has a lot of star power. Depending on where you look, the numbers are a little bit different, but it's grossed 173 million. Adjusted with inflation, that's $346 million, which puts it as the highest gross, grossing slasher until the 2018 Halloween came out. So this, and it's slasher, not horror movie ever, but slasher, which is a lot. Pretty big deal. Yeah. A pretty big deal. So this movie has made a lot of money. Of course, 
There are six installments of Scream and the marketing is huge. It's a pulls in a ton of money. This franchise just does really well. Each of them is doing a similar one to the first one, which is like a meta intertextual commentary on culture and film and consumption and horror and popular culture, all the things, right? Yes, and every single one has is Wes Craven, the, the director, and then has the original cast members. So usually. Wes Craven died in 2015, so five and six are not him are not him obviously yeah i straight up did not know that that he died yeah i didn't know yeah give me a second (laughs) (laughs) fly high king yeah yeah wow great but he did all the rest of them which is interesting because a lot of other horror franchises are not the same director that stay through the whole until they die it's dedication. Everyone knows the name Wes Craven. I would say, even if you don't, even if you're not a horror buff, he directed and wrote The People Under the Stairs, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Hills Have Eyes, The Last House on the Left. He directed the Red Eye. The writer, the screenwriter, Kevin Williamson, Scream was his first successful thing that he wrote, but also an incredible resume. He created Vampire Diaries and Dawson's Creek. He wrote The Faculty, I Know What You Did Last Summer, like produced all of the other screams. Yeah, so he similarly is a very successful Mm. writer and created a lot of the things we love, like Vampire Diaries. I love Vampire Diaries. Yeah. When he wrote the first scream and he gave it to the Weinsteins, he had the first five pages of the second screen. Not the first five pages written, but he had a yes. synopsis of his direction for a screen, too. They knew that it was Scary gonna... Movie, too. Scream I love too. that. And Scream actually was going to be called Scary, scary movie, movie, which is funny yeah. because I feel like Scary, scary Movie took that for sure. Yeah. I hate Scary Movie. I don't think it's funny. But something like it would be amazing. Yes. Something that yeah. was, was actually just like exploring horror yeah. in that way. Yeah. I feel like Scream is a scary is scary, scary movie, movie basically I know, I know. but I done like, tastefully yeah. yeah yeah i feel like scream queens is scary movie done oh, tastefully i love scream queens i'm I know you so do. glad i'm, I'm playing <laughs> i'm playing to my people yeah. <laughs> kevin williamson sold his script to dimension films which is bob weinstein's film company which is under miramax which is his brother is that how you say it miramax Mm -hmm. which is under his brother harvey the infamous harvey weinstein yeah we don't like harvey weinstein (laughs) you're allowed to say you i'm allowed to say you i don't know i have a what came first miralax or miramax what's What's miralax it's like a laxative (laughs) we should only refer to miramax as miralax (laughs) oh my god (laughs) i love that (laughs) but so dimension films was to this day i feel like doesn't produce like highbrow art films but at the time was not super successful and so scream was kind of bob weinstein's like he was doing this to put Dimension Films on the map and kind of grow it again, come out of Harvey's shadow, which now he will never do. <laughs> Poor guy. 
<laughs> it took Wes Craven a long time to come to this project. He said no originally because the budget was smaller. They approached people like Quentin Tarantino, yeah. George Romero, yeah. Sam Rami, a wow. lot of famous directors. Can you imagine if Quentin Tarantino had directed this? I would like, kill to timeline hop to that universe where he did direct it just to see <laughs> what it ended up like. Oh my god, passion project for the future. We should make a Quentin Tarantino style scream. Oh my god. Oh. It's all feet. And it doesn't make any sense. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, it's just it's <laughs> just like the feet. We should always. just be called feet then, not scream. <laughs> I hate Quentin Tarantino. I'm sorry. He also said, interestingly, I thought this was really good, that he, Wes Craven, he almost didn't take it in pot as well because he reached this point in making movies where he was like, do I want to keep making movies about women being cut up? And he was a bit like, no, I don't really want to do that anymore. That's fair. And who, then who? Wes Craven. Oh, okay. And then they got Drew Barrymore cast, yeah. and then he was like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll do it. Was, if I'm slashing up Drew Barrymore, yeah, I'm in. exactly. <laughs> if her guts will come out of her body, I want to see her insides. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Drew Barrymore came on the project on her own. She was known as a party girl and was ready to be like taken more seriously, wanted to do more serious acting, and came in to scream. Yeah. And then they, in order to like shock audiences, obviously, she was, I think, like the biggest name on this movie. Yeah. And yeah, dies immediately, which was her idea. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She wanted to do that. I love your framing of this, Camille, because I think one of the most interesting things about this movie compared to the rest of the ones that we've watched so far is that it's like it had a sort of branded production company giving it a budget mm -hmm. and that was like shopped around for directors, et cetera, et cetera. Like it went through a conventional Hollywood process mm -hmm. the way the other movies we've watched haven't. Yeah. Uh, and because of that, I think it actually encountered so many more hurdles than other movies did mm -hmm. everything was a fight yeah. like even title of the movie mm -hmm. like you pointed out it was called scary movie in the beginning it was bob weinstein's idea i think to have it be called scream, scream instead yeah and they almost fired wes craven so many times he came close to he like really being struggled. kicked off and then drew barrymore was meant to be sydney and then she was like no i want to be the girl who dies in the first scene and then they were like fuck we don't have a lead now and then there was that scene 118 scene 118 the yeah. whole sequence that was also just a yeah. nightmare and then they yeah. like fired their director of photography like a couple of days into doing that because yeah. of creative differences and then they had to find somebody else and then there was a whole thing about filming in California Bob Weinstein was like you need to film in Vancouver because it'll cost a million dollars less and Wes Craven was like, no, this like really needs to look like America. Yeah. <laughs> and and like, the only way for it to look like America is for it to be in California. Canada so foreign. <laughs> I know, seriously. That is so interesting because I feel like the fact that it was able to maintain its integrity through like the sequels and the subsequent films is like a testament to the fact that they got past all of these hurdles. Mm -hmm. Whereas we see the other franchises we've watched like really lose themselves yeah. after the first movie because they couldn't have those negotiations with the big Oh yeah, that was another thing that almost killed at one point was the rating, the MPAA was like, oh, we're gonna make it an NC-17 movie. They had to take out the guts slash innards weren't allowed to move or else and it was gonna get an NC-17 rating. So they had to, they couldn't show, because with 
Casey, Drew Barrymore, and Steve, her boyfriend. We see the guts hanging out of their body, but in order to get that R rating instead of NC-17, and NC-17 was like, nobody's gonna watch this if it's NC-17. That's like a death rating, mm -hmm. funnily enough. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so they had to cut a ton of it, a ton of the blood, a ton of the guts moving and grooving. Eventually, yeah. it was Bob Weinstein who went to the MPAA and was just like, but it's a comedy. It's mm -hmm. a satire, it's a comedy, like you need to calm down and watch it again with that context and then they got an R rating mm -hmm. instead. So is the not being allowed to see guts moving, is that, was that just some guy at the, in the powers that be like decided that or is that like a codified thing where you cannot have gut, like innards move in film? I don't know if that was based on FCC. Is that the FCC? I guess so. Yeah, something <laughs> like so that. Funny. I know so I don't funny know, what but we're they're willing off. to expose people to and what we're not. Yeah, uh, yeah. And there were a lot. There was like another thing where they wanted to film in a high school somewhere in Santa Rosa. And they got really like the, the community, community got really mad. Yeah, literally yeah. like everybody voted no, and they were like, you cannot. And it was because like a twelve-year-old or something was murdered. I think it just happened in, in the, the community. Area. Like somebody got abducted yeah. and then killed. And then as they were about to put the guy on trial who did it. Wes Craven and uh, co went to this high school in Santa Rosa and they were like hey we want to film this movie here but they I don't know if I don't really know how this miscommunication happened but apparently the school board was under the impression that it was just a comedy which again similar to in a way it is but I don't think they realized that children would be dying not mm, children but high school students yeah. would be dying and then they read the script yes. and then they were like yeah. absolutely not and then the whole community voted and they were like no mm. not allowed and Wes Craven even put like in the credits, he was like, no thanks whatsoever to the Santa Rosa, really? oh you know. God. That's in, you can see it's it? It's in it, yeah, it's in the credits. Oh my God. <laughs> no thanks to Santa Rosa. Literally, no That's thanks so whatsoever to, yeah. Um, just circling back, the scene 118 is the last scene that happens in it's Stu's the whole, house. It's the last like 42 minutes in the movie. It took 21 nights to film. Oh my god. And the crew had I Survived Scene 118 shirts made. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. The screenplay was inspired by the Gainesville murder, which was in Florida in 1990, and five students were murdered. I forget the serial killer's name. So Kevin Williamson, again, the screenwriter, was watching a Barbara Walters special on these murders, and he was house-sitting, and he was just, like, scaring the shit out of himself. So he, like, picked up a knife and called his friend and was walking around the house while talking to his friend on the phone about horror movies, and that's how, which we see in... I'm guessing scene one yes. of Casey doing the same thing. Mm. So that's where this was born. And, des and his desperation, because he was like not doing very well as yes. a writer. And he was just like... He needed the money. That's why he was also house-sitting. <laughs> and to zoom out a little bit, do you want to talk a little about the 90s? I don't remember them too well. I was personally born in 94. Were you guys born in 95? I was 95. And I was 96. Gosh, wow. oh look at us. Babies. <laughs> But yeah, there, there was a lot things of things happening in the 90s, so I've heard. At this time, which we've talked about, horror and slashers particularly were dying a little bit. Huh. We had this huge 
beautiful moment in the late 60s to like the mid 80s of these like very iconic slasher films coming out and it was a heyday even though as they started coming out it was already like the decline because studios were seeing how much money they could make I think we talked about with Texas Chainsaw Massacre how that was kind of one of the first and last true like low budget scrambling together like independent DIY independent really? horror films or sorry slasher slasher that was one of the last or like when people look back and look oh. at the trends that was because it was such a success that's so interesting and so the 90s were really churning out these like cash cow franchises and films and scream fell into that and pushed against it a little bit and horror of the 90s was really targeting teenagers because they were they are such a marketable still obviously one of the most marketable and profitable audiences that you can market to fun fact also about why Wes Craven ultimately decided that he was game to do this movie uh, I didn't realize this parallel before but a 12 year old girl or something that came up to him and was like your movies have gotten soft. Like, when are you going to make a real oh movie God. again? Yeah. Bob wants to have some cash across the board. He's like, tell him that he's like, hey, kids, see that man over there? I know. Tell him he's losing his edge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it pushed him. It That's did. Great. It pushed him wow. towards doing it. I love young, young girls really do run the world. Truly, truly. Obviously, a lot of great films came out in the 90s. We watched Candyman, Silence of the Lambs, Blair Witch, but then movies like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, not the TV show. I Know What You Did Last Summer, The Faculty, Urban Legends, Cherry Fall, some that preceded and some that came after Scream, but all these movies that are put into kind of the canon of the 90s today, but were looked upon as just not great movies at the time. Hmm. Scream really did revitalize the industry, but also, again, fed into this like watering down of horror and then after scream a lot of the movies that came out after it tried to do the same thing that scream did and just didn't do it on the same level movies like i know what you did last summer urban legend final destination all of these movies tried to similarly be this like meta critique but nothing is ever gonna be able to accomplish what scream did and then looking at politics of the time too in the 70s and in 80s, 80s more specifically, with Reagan, we had values pushed out in horror movies that were very much values of like purity and virginity and right, these horror rules of don't do drugs, don't have sex, trying to find out how to push people towards the like white picket fence idea of the American dream. And then in the 90s, we had this reckoning of through Bush and more Bill Clinton critiquing that. None of that stuff worked, right? We have the Anita Hill hearings in the 90s. We have Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. We have police brutality and Rodney King at a time where we thought we were in a post-civil rights mm. America and this kind of like societal reckoning, third wave feminism. America was like looking in upon itself and being like, none of this shit worked. We still are in this very regressive place and a critique of the American dream and a critique of Reaganomics, realizing that the ways that political systems were trying to fix things just didn't work and we were still in a broken mm. system. We also had hip hop rising, grunge and punk. We had Nirvana, we had Riot Girl, and it was just a really rich time for culture. And perfect for Scream to come in, which is this inter, I love the word intertextuality, 
Mm-hmm. And I see in my notes I actually wrote intersexuality. <laughs> and it's this this beautiful metacriticism. I feel like it's a very postmodern film. I've been really into postmodernism lately mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what it is, which is very complicated. Before you keep going, do you want to define what intertextuality is? I do, I do. So intertextuality is referencing other texts. So in Scream, we have possibly hundreds of plethora, potpourri (laughs) of verbal and visual and sonic. Is that the word? Yeah. Yeah. Taste. (laughs) Feel. (laughs) References to other horror films. Mm, Corn syrup. (laughs) I just have to... Yeah. My mom visited for 24 hours and I was dropping her off at the train station and she was going to the bathroom and there was a gender neutral bathroom and she's such a sweet woman. She called it the bisexual bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, get in there, Reed. Get in the bisexual bathroom. She's trying to educate herself though. She just read Gender Queer. It's yeah. like a graphic novel with her like book club of old ladies who Aww, are all at different stages of learning. I just think that's so sweet. And three of them have grandkids that are using they, them pronouns. I love that. But she's going to go right into the bisexual bathroom. <laughs> I also, though, really do appreciate that framing because inter- intertextuality is the type of thing that having mm-hmm. the definition on the table. to Yes. Yeah. Thank you, you know, for just, flagging that. Yeah. I appreciate that. I, I think that what I love about Scream and I would love to pass this question on as well is for me Scream is like the thesis statement about why I love horror because the more you put into the genre the more you get out of it the more horror movies you watch the more you'll appreciate the music that's used the style of shot that's used even departing from the slasher genre it all references itself a lot and that is what Scream is. Horror is doing that anyways, but they're just laying it out on the table a little bit more. What do you guys like about Scream? Oh man, can I Jump take in. the mic? Yeah. So of course this was my first time seeing the first screen. I have screen, <laughs> the screening, the first scream. <laughs> I have seen the fourth onwards, and now I've seen the second and third as well after mm-hmm. we watch yes, for the first time. I love horror movies that have fun with themselves because I also think that doesn't need to be, but really can be like a cornerstone of the genre. I also like the way that this film played with expectations mm-hmm. by having the person that we first suspect and then like disprove end up being the person. This isn't really, I'm getting ahead of myself, but watching it the second time it feels like Dewey was being set up as like the most likely suspect Mm -hmm. and how like interesting that is. And I will also say that scene 118, I assume, Mm -hmm. um, there are just so many smart devices in this movie. Like I love the 30 second camera lag and I love the way that like all of these kids are so, like it is a beautiful exploration of the way that America in a lot of ways has stamped out empathy among people because if you are practicing empathy, you are going to be like, crying on the floor all the time because things are really rough and just how quickly like the media cycle picks things up and makes them into something else yeah i love this movie i feel like it's the type of movie that i could continue to watch and continue to like see more every single time great i love it yeah i i similarly i love this movie for a lot of reasons i think chief among them i love that it's so self-aware i also love that as you have both said, like it doesn't take itself too seriously. It has such a great sense of humor. I actually also really enjoy and appreciate that the 
teenagers in this movie are quite smart. It's not like they're dim-witted or there's no sort of like stereo, I don't want to say stereotypical because I feel like they are stereotyped in a way, but I think they create the stereotype with this movie, not necessarily the other way around. Yeah, I just love, I loved that. I also love that they play with expectations. I love that the killer could literally be anybody. I think we've talked about this before a whole lot that like horror really plays with this idea that you shouldn't ever say too much about what a thing is or describe it too extensively. Just leaving things to people's imaginations is really what is most terrifying and I feel like this whole movie is just a giant tease. I love that about yeah. To that point, one of the major events of horror happens a year before the movie starts. And I think that's really cool. And also, Camille, I'm so excited for us to talk about the final girl dynamics in this movie because I think that it's so interesting the way that like Sydney is answering for the sexual sins of her mother. Yeah. I also think what I love so much about this movie, everybody who worked on this movie worked on it because they absolutely adored it. Mm -hmm. Everybody worked on it because they believed in the script, they just thought it was hysterical and groundbreaking and they were all just so ecstatic to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And it seems like they have all felt that way throughout every iteration of the film, which I also think is just so special and like it really reinforced my appreciation of film as like a very collaborative creative medium like it really takes every single person that's involved like loving it and being passionate about their role. And I think that's something I assumed could not exist in a big studio environment and it's cool that this film managed to like create that environment despite the fact that there are these sort of like monumental powers that be yeah. puppeting everything. Yeah. Obviously working on a film is really hard and it's there's gonna be issues and people are gonna be unhappy, but in terms of comparing this to like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre or like an older film where we've talked about how fucking awful the sets are. And obviously like I don't wanna condone any Weinstein and the environment that they create, but it was refreshing not to find any huge issue with the filming. Well, I don't think that people were like having a fun time all the time, but it no. wasn't like no one was exploited. No, I don't think anybody was exploited. The most dramatic thing I heard was the director of photography being fired and like mm. they used ev they used everything that he directed photography for in the movie except for that one scene where they got a, like a new person to do it. One more thing I just want to say quickly about why I love this movie and what I think is so distinct about it compared to every other movie we've watched so far in this genre is that, and this is maybe just an extension of me saying I love that it's self-aware, for the first time we're dealing with people who have watched horror movies and they have this really deep love of horror themselves and have really been entrenched in it and enjoyed it. And I know Randy is really the primary representation of that, but I just love that there's like yeah. Sid sitting and looking through the horror movies and being like, why is Jamie Lee Curtis in all of these movies? I just love that. Yeah, it's a huge nod. I feel like it's just a huge ode to the genre of horror and slashes in particular. And I love that it establishes that horror at this point has entered the mainstream to the point where even if you aren't a Randy, a horror movie fanatic, you are at least aware of what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. And I also just have to say, Randy screaming at the screen, turn around while the okay. ghost face is behind him, is just, there are just so many morsels like that in this movie that are just so delicious. Truly. I love it so much. I love that it too. 
Yeah, Randy yelling at the screen while Ghostface is behind him, and then the 30-second lag in the truck while the cameraman is also yelling at At Randy. Randy. That is one of my favorite scenes in film. It's so good. I think it's so clever. It's so funny. Yeah, like you said earlier, the 30-second lag just gives so much to play with, which is really fun. Oh it's my god. So oh wait, sorry. One more thing I absolutely adore about this movie is the costume. Like Ghostface is as a costume. Oh wait, I looked it up. Okay, I also I looked into it. The way that they found the mosque. They were location scouting somewhere and they like went into a house that was used in another movie. I don't remember which one, but they like went into this house and they went upstairs and this lady I, again, I wish I remember what she did for the movie, but she like went upstairs and saw in a teenager's room like just the ghost face mask like hanging on a little pole, and she was like, "Whoa, that's freaky!" And she brought it to Wes and was like, "What if we just use this?" Because they were really struggling and had the whole division like dedicated to trying to figure out a mask, and like they came up with these sketches, but the sketches were really like ghoulish. They just kind of, they looked like an animal of sorts every time. Every iteration had features that were recognizable and then they saw this one and they were like, no, that's spooky and it's not nondescript enough. And then they were like, okay, let's try to riff on it because we don't own the rights to this exact thing. And so they tried a bunch of different things, but nothing landed the same way that Mosque did. And it's this place called Fun World or something that came up with the Mosque, but it didn't. they didn't come up with the rest of the costume. They like went through this whole stage where they were like, oh, what if we just put the Mosque on and then like put white all around the person? And then somebody was like, no, they're gonna look like the Ku Klux Klan. That's oh, not gonna work, like we can't do that. And eventually it was just functional. It was like, oh, we need to just actually conceal whoever is doing the killing to the max. So we need them to just be covered completely from head to toe. So they came up with the idea of this black cloak that was a little shimmery so that it like picked up light. And they added gloves and put it all the way to the floor so that it could be absolutely anyone inside the costume and behind the mosque. And the voice, oh my god, the voice, so good. I love the voice in this movie, and I feel like generally the villains don't have a voice, and I love that in this one, that's the whole thing. I hadn't even noticed or considered the way that having a shapeless cloak really does add so much to the mystery, and I think that other movies we've watched struggled with that. Particularly, Mm. I'm thinking of Mrs. Voorhees. Like, we would see the killer a little bit, like, wearing, they definitely wanted us to think that was a man wearing, like, a flannel in the forest, and you can definitely see hands that probably weren't that woman's hands. I want to circle back to something that you mentioned about teenagers, because I think it goes with another question that I want to ask. The teens in this movie are smart. And that's a departure from what we've seen before in all of the other movies, the final girl included. Teenagers are really stupid. They just, they trespass. They don't really know what they're doing. They like go into the basement when they're not supposed to go into the basement. When they come into contact with the killer, they're just like really making bad decisions. They don't know what they're doing. And moreover, like all the women specifically who die are like, they're not nice. They're very like vapid. They're like slutty. Not that slutty is a bad thing, but they're portrayed in a very negative way because they die. And we as an audience are understanding that they die because of who they are, basically. Mm. And Scream flips that around. It completely subverts that because everyone is smart. And not only are they smart, but they know how to survive specifically in a horror movie a lot of the time. They have this awareness of 
how to exist and push back on things and question things in a way that just didn't exist in horror before. And agency wasn't given to the characters. Yeah. And I love the way the movie addresses the things that we are often screaming at the screen during horror movies of like, like the point when Sydney says, I don't understand why people are running up the stairs and out the front door and then immediately she's put in a position where she has to run upstairs. It's cool to get to that they thought about, okay, how can we make this actually a reasonable choice the characters are making to go into that garage by yourself when there's a killer on the loose yeah. to get beer. Yeah. Makes sense. I also just have to say I love the way that Ghostface nods when she says, and I'm going to be your like victim. Yes. Like, can I, so can I play the helpless? Yeah. Can I play the helpless girl? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. Absolutely. I love that too. It's my favorite. But yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about other ways that you notice this film kind of subverting the slasher genre. If you have other ideas or thoughts about how it pushes back and changes things. Thinking about The Final Girl, I just love Sydney as a character. When we first see Billy and Sydney interact, and it's revealed that at the beginning of their relationship two years ago, she was more like sexually free. He's like the NC-17 rating. And then this sort of violent act against her mother forced, I think, Sydney back into her shell sexually, and no, so she's no longer comfortable because it's clear that she, in her mind, blames her mother's murder. Or she's, she can't make space for the possibility of her mother enjoying sex and then also being murdered as, like, two separate occurrences. Like, And then also I noticed that right after Sydney does have sex, which is we haven't seen before, like, normally I feel like the virgin stays a virgin, but she does continue to be a virgin <laughs> the whole series, I think. Um, just in her behavior but after she's done having virgin sex, she's, behavior yeah oh she's real God. virgin behavior Sydney. she's sitting on her bed and she is completely fully clothed like no skin showing she's putting on a sweater over her like already and i just love that even though she has sex she is still going to be the covered kind of conservative and then just the last thing i'll say i love when billy walks into her room and she's wearing her little nightgown and he says you wear that to bed and she's like ah, of course i do so yeah. cute it feels like this movie compared to some of the other ones is a lot more complex in the plot and like the storyline there's just so much more depth and there's so much more backstory and every character has a little more exposition and there's so much more room for you to really enjoy and get to know many different people like just know Sydney by the end of this movie we know Gail we know Dewey we know Tatum obviously we know Billy and Stu I just loved that they had so many characters that were like really a consistent presence throughout the movie we really got to see lots of sides of like they really all had dimensions they were all very dynamic i like that dewey is a jester character and like a joker sort of but he's also like this he's a little bit of a respite like he has no cynicism he's just this like really pure man who, mom says i'm a man of the law yeah, I mean, yeah you have to treat me like a man of the law yeah they almost didn't keep him in too mm -hmm. they wrote on one of the last nights that they were filming scene 118 they were like it would be a huge disservice if we didn't write a scene where dewey lived and came back and then they did it okay. and they wrote it and filmed Thank it God. on the last day that they were filming scene wow. 118. He's such a joy. He is such a joy. Two other quick subversions that I thought of as well. The presence of guns I think is really interesting in this oh, yeah. movie that like they didn't, it, I don't think that a gun really kills anyone or does it? It does kill Billy. Billy. Oh that's interesting. Mm. It's interesting. Okay so that's interesting and then. <laughs> <laughs> okay so that's interesting. <laughs> that I really like. I was so fun watching it again. 
and knowing that Billy was behind this whole whole time and rereading his reactions to things in a very different way like when he is talking to either the principal or the cop with his dad and the like, cop yeah yeah and he has this look on his face that the first time I was watching it I thought was like what the fuck how am I getting blamed for this instead of oh my god like I am not getting away with this yeah. I just think that is really smart and the, oh the last thing I do think that incorporating the presence of the media is really interesting like how that does really complicate experiences for people to have like others on the periphery just really wanting to know what's happening but not really having any interest in, in stopping what's going to happen from mm. happening uh, and gail i just think is such a fucked up character i'm so interested in her i don't understand her at all yeah yeah just the scene where Stu and billy have revealed themselves and are in the kitchen with sydney and are explaining what happened and then start stabbing each other so it looks like it was her father they also love how i guess billy's a little smarter than Stu, but i love just how stupid they both are they're so dysfunctional they're so incompetent there's they've they pulled off a lot of murders Mm. so kudos to them but they're just these two teenage boys who are like have watched too many horror Mm. movies i love that in this movie the killer is unmasked there's like a big reveal and it's like this Mm -hmm. whole thing and it's a twist and I love that I love that it's two people which I feel like for a lot of the movie you aren't led to believe love the red herring situation in this movie I feel like they point a finger at almost Mm -hmm. everybody except Sydney it could be anybody except for Sydney and Cotton and to your point about Stu and Billy just being very stupid one of the first scenes right after Casey gets murdered and Stu is just like explaining how you would get a person and Billy is like staring at him in this what the hell are you saying man and when you first watch it you are led to believe it's because he cares about his girlfriend whose mother got murdered like last year and he wants to protect her but in retrospect it's like he's actually like you are being he says to him like have some tact Mm -hmm. and the tact could mean have some tact think about this girl's feelings or have some tact we need to be tactful in continuing to carry out these murders how much we know about how to do all these things i love the conversation that they have in this movie too about motives Mm -hmm. i like that everything is very overt like they have an overt conversation about like what does randy say you don't have to have a motive it's the millennium like it's like in vogue motives are dead yeah Yeah. but then it's revealed that actually you do have to have a motive i love the way that billy is like i don't have a motive and then he reveals that he actually does have a very specific and I love that Stu, like Stu's motive is like peer pressure. Stu's motive is that he like loves Billy. Oh my God. I think he's in love with Billy. Yeah. I, I, so one of my favorite things in looking things up in the, or for this movie, this is actually, a lot of these insights came from like one little documentary where everybody was interviewed. Everybody from the cast read a little snippet describing their characters. I just need to find the one for (laughs) Stu. It's so funny oh my god also how they cost okay it just makes it really sad to me that this is how they cost Matthew Lillard Lillard in this movie as Stu and this was the description of Stu and the woman just walked up to him when he was like dropping his girlfriend off at another costing call and I think his was, girlfriend was auditioning for Scream oh no oh maybe she was but she was like across the hall or something and the, this lady who was the costing director comes for Scream or something comes up to him and is, it would be perfect for this role would you just read for it this is how Stu was described in the script. I just think it's so sad that this woman went up to him and was like, you're perfect for this 
would you please come and read? Oh my god. Okay, this is him. Stu's character is a Billy wannabe, almost a jock, almost handsome, almost cool. He tries way too hard. I think he tries just enough. <laughs> Justice for Stu. As we've asked this in several of our films, who who is the villain of this movie? Or what is the villain? Sex education in the United States. Just in a way. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Puritanism, Puritanism around sex. Also Billy and Stu. <laughs> <laughs> I also would throw in masculinity. Oh, yeah. A little bit. Yeah. The media. The media, yeah. Lack of empathy. Definitely, this movie really drives home that idea that I think it's maybe Scream 4 where this really comes out, or actually Scream 5, where the villain is actually made to be you, the person watching, mm. because your viewership is a, is like a, it's, uh, what's the word for it? It's like, it's like, you're it's like enabling it. Yeah, you're enabling it. Like you're supporting the infrastructure by like you're demonstrating your system. yeah. Which I think it is actually really trendy for horror right now. I think that Nope was saying that as well in a certain capacity, and I even think that the menu and there was something else. Yeah, I think we're in a moment where the audience is getting pulled in. A lot of media, film, TV shows are. Their, their thesis statement like requires people to be watching it and bringing in spectators and bringing in critics and the media and all the stuff that like happens around a movie existing and being watched to make a statement on society. I also think like part of the, the evil, I guess everything you guys have said sums this up too. I guess I just find the whole Okay, the n nuclear family is what I'm trying to get at. Mm -hmm. Billy was really affronted by the fact that his family was torn apart by this woman, and mm -hmm. that's why he went on this rampage yeah. against Sydney and her mother. Mm -hmm. And like he, in a way, also ripped them apart yeah. the way that he might have felt. Just like another thing about like family being so sacred and so pristine and perfect, and it isn't. Yeah. And they all do, to some extent, have very absent parents, or at least parents that clearly aren't willing to really talk to them about these things. Like, Sydney's father really being gone the whole movie and her not being able to find him, despite the fact that it's the one-year anniversary of her mother getting murdered, I feel... Yeah, like, he should not have gone away, like, yeah. the weekend before the anniversary, probably. And it feels like what Billy is really experiencing, like, the real pain he's experiencing that he's not able to identify is that he's not getting the support from his family through this difficult thing to the point where he cannot understand that the difficult thing he is going through is, like, a little different from your mother getting murdered. I, in the first scene where he's like, I something happened a year ago and things changed and I just don't understand, like, why you won't sleep with me. Yeah. And it's like, well, her mother was raped and murdered. And then in school and he's like, you know, my mom left and I got over it. Yeah. It's like, what are you talking I, about? I know, literally, how are these the same yeah. thing? I also, this is maybe another subversion thing, not in the movies we've necessarily watched, but in other movies from this time is that the handsome boyfriend is written off as mm. a potential suspect be yeah. in part because he's just ha handsome mm. and like is more believable etc etc mm. this one mm -hmm. like he's fully just yeah. dead ass the bad guy yeah and I think that there is a trope in horror of or it taps into our fear of the consequences for our 
like everyday sins, quote unquote, being like huge and overwhelming. And I think that is true here. We're like cotton weary. For instance, his crime was engaging in adultery and he got sentenced to life for it. What do you think, Camille, about who the villain is and the evil is in this movie? I think it comes down to masculinity a lot of the time and Billy feeling like he couldn't control what happened with his family and trying to regain control and trying to get revenge and trying to like grasp onto something in a kind of like mm. traditional um, masculine way. I'm not mm. saying that to be masculine you have to be a murderer, but... <laughs> I'm saying that. <laughs> I'll say it. We know that it's not really because Sydney won't have sex with him, but he's stunted in that way. He's, yeah, feeling like he's losing control over Sydney, over his life, over, again, his family, and just trying to act out in this way. And then seeing this very violent, like, portrayal of revenge in film and embodying that in his life. And also, if you look at, like, the Steve and Casey situation, what did they say at the beginning? Casey left Stu for Steve. That's like this very, oh, you stole my girlfriend. I'm going to kill you. I am curious if... Sydney agreeing to have sex with Billy was a necessary precursor for him murdering her. And I'm asking that question because the first, I mean, for a number of reasons, but the first time that Sydney comes in contact with Ghostface and then Billy comes through the window and the phone falls out of his pocket, I do wonder if she was never going to get killed in that situation, but that was instead mm. a way to reinforce her trust in Billy, for her to see Billy as the savior. And so I do wonder if if Sydney had continued to refuse him sex, if he wouldn't have then killed her. If like he was going to make her sexuality a sin for which he would punish her with death. I think that's a great observation. I would actually say yes, especially because Stu and Billy are basing their murder so specifically off of horror movies. They know, I'm assuming that they know that it's a rule that you can't break. Oh, and yeah. then when, when Stu says right after Randy's like, don't you know, don't say like, be right back. And then Stu says, be right back. The reason Stu could say be right back is because and he's still the one, comply with the rules yeah, is because, because he's, he's the, one who the murderer. Is, I think it's really interesting that Billy doesn't see Sid as a victim of the circumstance too. Like, yes, her mother didn't leave her because she was cheating on her dad, but I don't think that was going to ultimately be a good thing in any way. It's just like he is incapable of empathizing. But then I did wonder if he really was incapable of empathizing or if he's someone who's just like living within the toxic masculinity paradigm to the point where he cannot process his emotions in an appropriate way. I was just wondering that with him because it feels too easy to say that he's a psychopath and has always been a psychopath. Mm. I mean, he da he has daddy issues for sure. I think he does for sure is not well supported and hasn't been through his mother's absence. He could be both. I think but that's I just want to think I highly likely. <laughs> well, and I think it's a mother's absence. I think it's also a good commentary that really fits into kind of how horror films discuss mm. motherhood, motherhood. Yeah. which is usually mothers are at fault for a lot of what happens and also are the source of horror yeah. in a lot of films. It's interesting that his dad his dad is the one that commits the bad act. Like, he has sex with Sydney's mom, mm. causing 
Billy's mother to leave. And it is so interesting that he is only looking to the women surrounding That's his what, father. Yeah, yes. it's just crazy to me. Women are, they are not someone that you care. They're disposable. They like, I don't know, like they're not somebody you can relate yeah. to in any way, but men, sure, it's okay. They're both disposable, but then also all powerful in this specific way. And that way is like committing the transgressions. And have we met one no. killer without mommy issues? I don't think so. I think all of them have. Candyman didn't have mommy issues. Yeah, his mother was very absent from the whole story, though, so. Yeah. But I feel like all of the killers other than him, mommy have issues a, have actually been like a mother narrative. Yeah. Michael Myers, I feel like, had sister issues, not mommy issues. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, but you're right. He was being babysat by his sister, so she was like essentially playing the role of mother. Yeah. She was mommy for the night. She was mommy for the night. So this is the scene where they're all at Stu's house drinking and eating popcorn and watching Halloween. And Stu's like, I want to see Jamie Lee Curtis's boobs. And Randy's like, you can't because she's the final girl. She's a virgin. Yeah. And he's like, what are you talking about? And Randy's like, don't you know the rules? And he says, there are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. Big no-no. Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. The sin factor. It's a sin. It's an extension of number one. And number three, never ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be right back. It's so fun that they did that. It's so fun that they put that in this movie. And that's another one of my favorite parts because these are the things that we talk about when we've watched horror, right? There are these rules and there are these ways to survive and you can really pinpoint who's gonna die first and what's gonna happen as people make these decisions in, in slasher film. I love that Sydney immediately after he says all of that has sex and then survives. Yeah. I also love that because he's aware of these rules and he has this like geeky persona and he lives in the video store essentially that he is set apart in perspective from everybody else in the group and it enables him to see Billy and Stu as the real villains yeah. all along. It just reminded me so much of Franklin. I was like, no one's listening to Randy yeah, because yeah. Randy's a little dorky and people don't take him seriously. But like he sees through it all. You know? I love the video store scene in I that love it way too. of like him saying he should not be hanging out in the horror, horror section. section. Like, I love that too. That. I also do just want to plug slash pull out some of the horror Easter eggs that are in this. Mm -hmm. There is a very iconic Wes Craven cameo. Actually, Wes Craven had cameos in the first one through four screams until he died. Wes Craven plays a janitor in the first movie and he's dressed up like Freddy pulled out the real clothes like he had them in oh, storage it's the somewhere same costume? it's the same oh my costume. god that's amazing oh, that. yeah. so sweet also at one point in the film they make a commentary about the sequel to friday the 13th and they're saying how bad it was and wes craven was not involved with the second friday the 13th which is just like a funny dig that's at that so... franchise oh did i say friday the 13th yeah, yeah. I, i'm sorry i meant nightmare on elm street okay, okay. i meant like, nightmare on elm street sorry yeah okay got it I those two movies I think it's yeah. because the amount of words that are in the title mm. I get they're interchangeable in my mind too. yeah I, get I always think Freddy is in Friday the 13th too maybe it's the F alliteration Wes Craven did not direct the second Nightmare on Elm Street so there's a dig at that in Scream 
because he wasn't involved with it. Another one, which I think Kiara, you mentioned while we were watching it, Casey's dad says to her mom, go up to the Mackenzie's and like call the police. And the Mackenzie's are from, from Halloween. Halloween. It's so fun. The first scene is like very reminiscent of when a stranger calls. There's a Leatherface quote, a Candyman quote. The score is reminiscent of Halloween. And they name the exorcist prom night, I spit on your grave, basic instinct, silence of it. Like they just do such a good job of listing so many films. I also wanted to mention the use of the song Don't Fear the Reaper. They have a cover of it. I forget who the cover is by. I it's love this so cover good. so I know, I love much. it too. It's when Billy comes into Sid's room and is like, I was watching The Exorcist and it made me think of you. Don't Fear the Reaper is used in a ton of films. And the Blue Oyster Cult original version is used in Halloween. So in this film, it's a nod to Halloween. It's also used in X, which is a Aww. nod to these movies as well. I was just going to say, I think the soundtrack of this movie reinforced the statement, but the documentary I watched about them making this movie characterizes Scream as a John Hughes teenage teenager mm. movie meets slasher. And I feel like the soundtrack really reinforces that, especially yeah. this cover that you're discussing it really made me think of the breakfast club <laughs> yeah yeah it's such a good it's such a good soundtrack yeah another little fact that i wanted to mention is while they were filming so they use a retractable knife but they when they were using an umbrella in the final scene they actually i think what's her name sydney prescott what's Nave her real campbell name? Nev, yeah nev campbell accidentally like stabbed Skeet Ulrich in like a wound that he had from heart surgery and oh they god. used that cut in the movie oh my god so he's like actually reacting out of pain, pain. I don't love that like he got stabbed in a wound yeah. but I love that they kept that this is so simple and silly and I think that any other content that tries to do a similar kind of meta thing bothers me but I just love the I love the way that they did the exchange between Sydney and Billy where he is like it's all a movie and she's like this isn't a movie this is life there's something just so like mm. whoa about that that they just did it so well. And I love that this is the last movie we are watching in our first season <sighs> about too. slashers because we can really directly see the way that the other movies we've seen, both in like very overt and also more covert ways, just snowballed into this mm -hmm. movie. And it really has been such a, obviously I haven't seen this movie before, but I just, I can feel the ways in which my understanding, like you mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation, Camille, my understanding of this movie is so much more rich because we've engaged with the other movies. But the beauty of horror is that I would not, no one needs to have engaged with any right. of those other movies. There are just levels that you can engage with. It's great. It is great. It's beautiful. I have one more additional fun fact I want to throw in. The guy who voices Ghostface, mm -hmm. Roger Jackson, he never interacted with anybody in the cast. So whenever he called them, he was somewhere on set, but not anywhere that the cast actually knew. Yeah. And they, like, intentionally kept him apart from everybody else so that every time they heard his voice it wasn't that it was the first time but it was more that it, they never got used to hearing uh, that voice come from a person who mm, was anything but this terrifying so, figure yeah. so they used that idea of your imagination being the thing that scares you most with their own cost and against them because they never saw his face they didn't know what he looked like they never had any idea what kind of person he really was and even in this documentary he, they have him like completely silhouette 
yeah. you don't see him you just hear his voice he's creepy as all hell oh yeah. my god i love that yeah I, in the way that we have mentioned films being revolutionary sometimes it's hard to really appreciate the weight of that because we live in a world that comes after the like revolutionary tropes that movies have offered to us. I think that it's really beautiful that a lot of horror movies make the claim that the villain is among us, the villain is among us, Black Christmas, the villain is in the house. This movie takes it even one step further and it's like the villain is really among us. The villain is our friends, our family, it is everywhere, it's here. And I can only imagine like what a fucking head spin, head spin it would have been to find out, oh, that was a voice box. That was a, like technology now is progressing in a way where murder is happening differently. And that is beautiful. That was another thing that I love. That is beautiful. I'm sorry. <laughs> technology has progressed in a so way that murder is happening differently. Differently and it's beautiful. beautiful. No, I'm so glad you said that because I think this is another thing that I, did not fully appreciate about Scream in so many of the times that I've watched it previously that like cell phones were like a huge mm. advent at the time. Like it was not possible before that for somebody to call anyone without a landline. And like now these guys can just call from anywhere yeah. and like you won't know and like you can copy a phone and make it seem yeah. like it's somebody else. Yeah. It just opens up a whole new world. And in direct relation with Black Christmas, where phones were also a similarly central character, but you do have that structure and like convention. Exactly. A landline, like you said, needing to exist and you being able to like trace it. The presence of like phone cloning throughout the whole series is yeah. so interesting. Yeah. And it is so bizarre to see like the way that cell phones look in this context. And they're just at the point where they're like common enough that people might have them, but not common enough that like everyone has them or that the teens around you have them. The movie does exist in this very specific moment between worlds. This does feel like the last moment that, I was thinking about this with, they aren't able to track down her dad, like they can't figure out where he's staying. Of course, we are meant to be concerned about him, like where is he at a certain point? But in this world, if you can't get in contact with someone for more than five hours, it's immediately concerning. Mm -hmm. And so this movie, I feel like kind of, was the end of a certain reality that horror could rest on that, that now in this world it can't. Absolutely, completely. absolutely. Completely. And I love that, I love as well that like, part of what plagues Sydney in every other movie after the first scream is the very fact that like when Ghostface is back, it's because it's someone she's been exposed to. It's like oh. somebody that's been someone to her throughout some period in her life and that is just a yeah. cruel kind of psychological yeah. torture yeah. and not to get too ahead of outside of this movie but in the third movie her working as like a crisis hotline person for right. women is it's just... a crazy job i love that yeah. she did it but i just wow she really has a knack for re-traumatizing herself in oh. some ways Poor. can we talk about gail weathers yeah, we can talk about Gail Weathers. I am curious what you two have to say about her because I just feel like she was such a complicated... If 
Dewey was not interested in her, I would be pretty sure mm. that she was also a villain of the story. But because she has this strange kind of manipulative psychosexual relationship with Dewey, it's complicated. Like, who is Gil Weathers? I'd love to just say that Courtney Cox had a really hard time getting cast as Gail Weathers because she was in Friends at the time. And they thought that her character as Monica was like this very nice, bubbly, friendly oh, girl. Okay, and so yeah. they didn't want to cast her as the bitch because they didn't think she could play the bitch. Oh my God. But obviously she got the role. And so I, I think that in itself, not to color mm. how people understand her as a character obviously she's very complex but i do think that she's supposed to be a bitch she's yeah. supposed to be rude and mean and she's not nice to sydney etc but it's hard not to have empathy for characters yeah. in general and i do think that yeah her relationship with dewey it's weird a lot of weird things happening there yeah. and dewey's also like a complicated character but i do think that at least having her put into a bit of a romantic light makes her, opens her up a little bit maybe. And I love Gail, but I also love Gail because I've seen Scream so many times that I have an appreciation for her. I love her costume and her little bangies. That is great context. I hadn't really considered the way that horror, while it is in conversation with itself, it is also in conversation with the time and with Mm. the media of the time. And I hadn't considered the way that like, yeah, we really do associate actors particularly with their television roles. And so that is interesting. I also just, before I ask Kiara, I just want to say that I love in the second movie when her like cameraman finds out that her first cameraman was Died. like murdered. Yeah, terribly. So funny. It is very it's like, funny. I'm, I'm curious, Kara. Me. What oh, Gail. Gail. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love that she really pushed to be in that role. I thought that that's one of my favorite. All of my fun, my favorite facts about this movie is like someone making a rash decision on the back end that mm. like really catapulted them into crisis every time they tried to make it. I think it was Brooke Shields that they almost put in oh. as Gail Weathers instead of Courtney. Mm. Brooke Shields came in and I think read for it and they almost had her do it. And then Courtney Cox was like, no, me, please, mm. which I think is great. And Dewey also actually had a, they wanted to cost him initially as one of the kids, like in the group of five mm. and then he was like no i actually really i really want to be dewey Aww. and the reason he said he wanted to be dewey is because like he well, was in love with courtney cox yeah he was in love with Aww. courtney cox Did he and he was her before yeah because he was like yeah if i get to, if i'm dewey i get to kiss courtney cox which is like pretty he said that to west craven when he was like yeah this <gasps> that's kind of why i wanted meta. i know that's meta i know it is so meta that's and then they fell in love so and and meta. when people were watching <laughs> them in scream they would comment on how courtney cox was acting like as though she was falling in love with him and then really she was just falling in love with him. And I was 24 for a whole year. I know, (laughs) I know, I love that. Oh, Dewey, so wholesome. And he points out that his like favorite attribute of Dewey as a character is that he's this guy who is like in a position of authority who he himself believes is like cool and very capable. And the way that David Arquette talks about him, he's yeah, like, I used to imagine that Dewey thought of himself as like Clint Eastwood. He could go around with his gun and he just was really cool, but like he lived in that world alone and nobody else took him that seriously and nobody else respected him that way. And that was his favorite attribute of the character. Gail, I really have always enjoyed as a character actually in this movie. I feel like there's something to be said about her relationship with Sydney in particular mm. and like the relationships that women have with other women. I've always had a, a great respect for Gail. I 
can completely understand and respect that she's someone who to get what she wants does inflict harm on other people but in the end she's very effective actually and integral to them solving these murders and like figuring out what's really going on she is so willing to do what other people are not and so willing to just ride her ambition into danger i guess i do feel very like flabbergasted by who is she doing all of this for when people are writing the stories of like real horrifying events that have happened in the world I feel like there's this recurring thing of I'm doing it so that the victims or the victims families can get justice Mm -hmm. and Gail is so interesting to me because she actually has no interest in the victims or the victims families she's just she wants a Pulitzer like she Mm -hmm. I, I think she wants to bring Cotton out of prison but then also it's revealed that she doesn't give a heck about Cotton. Gail to me is very like girl boss Mm. and I mean that obviously in a bad way and I think that if third wave feminism and this non-intersectional feminism that's happening like Gail is very much I'm sure she's had to prove herself make room for her at the boys table has this like very simplistic idea of feminism this very I deserve to be here I'm gonna throw other people under the bus Mm self-centered kind of idea that I think matches up with a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of feminism in previous iterations of it. So she's just not, she doesn't think about other people. She thinks about herself. She thinks about her goals and she thinks about, yeah, fighting to get there. It doesn't matter who dies in the wake. And obviously she's so invasive, which I feel like reflects the media of the time. And I think it's interesting that in the second movie, she then becomes like a victim of the same behavior Mm -hmm. by other people. I guess she just feels like she lacks core self-awareness to me. Yeah, yeah. I do like in the third movie that Dewey dates the woman who's playing her in the like movie version within the movie. It's just so good. I just love how complicated it all gets. I also feel like Gail represents to Sydney she's just this recurrent like reminder of Sydney's past and Mm -hmm. her mistakes like she falsely implicated a man in a crime against her mother and I feel like that's another very I don't know it it just feels like Gail has a lot of even though she is she's nauseating as a tabloid Mm -hmm. journalist and like really quite relentless I think I don't know I just appreciate that she is like sometimes rewarded for that and then sometimes put in her place for it I think it's just they manage her very well I'll say I also just really like that she is so like prickly and Mm. awful and like Dewey is just like a little marshmallow and he's just like head over heels for this woman Uh, and like yeah I just I love I guess maybe what I'm trying to say is that I don't know if I really love Gail, but I love who she is to other people yeah. in the movie. Yeah. And I, you just made me think about like Sydney implicating or serving as the core testimony that gets caught in sentenced. I, it is. I think that there's something really meaty and juicy about like the concept of it being easier for Sydney to accept the idea of her mother getting like brutally raped and murdered than it is to think about her mother being like a complicated woman who Mm. who stepped outside of her marriage and slept around and then also got murdered as well there's something to be said about culturally how we prefer that women have their agency taken away sexually rather than when bad things happen to them rather than them being allowed to be like fully sexual beings alongside of violence in the world. 
Yeah. It can, it's very hurtful, painful, but it does feel like a radical act, particularly for a woman to choose her own romantic interests mm-hmm. over duties that have been kind of prescribed to her. And I think that it's so interesting the way that children then internalize the transgressions of their parents. I feel like until watching this movie, I thought that the virgin, like, final girl thing was more about a cultural sort of hatred towards women's sexuality. And this made me feel like the movie twisted that and said, there is a real fear in the world among women that if I don't have sex, I will be safe. And if I have sex, whatever happens to me is my fault, something that I like engaged in. And I feel like Sydney takes that to such an extreme where I think that she clearly starts looking at her sexuality after her mother's death as something that if she denies it, then she will not live the life of her mother. And I think that even taking a step back or maybe it's a step forward, that's what horror is doing a lot of the time. Those are the rules. If you have sex, you die. And making that a rule takes away the kind of happenstance, right? It's it's a rule and it's solid. And if you do it, you're solidifying your own death and that's on you. It's not a consequence. Or it is a consequence and it's a known consequence. It's not just, oh you had sex and then this happened. It's this happened because you did this thing. The other movies we've seen, Mm. it feels like they're reinforcing that idea. Like reinforcing the idea that, I don't think that this is counter to your point. I think it's in support of your point. In the other movies we've seen, it has felt to me like the women having sex is them doing a bad thing that then leads to their death. And Uh here I feel like it says women feel a justified fear around sex. Okay. Do you think that Sydney is a fully realized character? Can you elaborate more on... I feel like sometimes final girls Mm -hmm. to me feel like a person who has had all of the idiosyncrasies of being a person erased from them. We know that they maybe are studious and virgins, but beyond that, we're not aware of any interests that they have or anything that makes them different or any real flaws that they have. Mm. And I feel like Sydney to me felt more maybe identifiable than let's say Lori in a lot of ways, but there was still something about her that feels a little empty to me. I think it's hard for men in the 90s and prior and today sometimes too (laughs) to write fully realized female characters and so I think that Scream is trying to subvert the simplistic non-realized characters that are in horror and obviously takes these characters in Sydney way more takes them a lot further than a Lori or a Sally yeah. or a whoever else, but there's still a long way to go. There's still mm-hmm. a very long way to go. And there's only so much you can do in, what is this, an hour and 45? Yeah. There were some adjectives thrown around in this documentary about this movie, but to capture like the final girl, but also just that described Sydney, which I think inadvertently means describing a final girl and like the collective attributes of such a person are intelligence, Mm. strength, innocence, virginity, and vulnerability. And I feel like they're all written to just meet that criteria. Mm. I don't know Mm. if they're really written to... Yeah, to exceed that. Yeah. I think 
I don't know. I can't tell if it's a chicken or egg situation. Like, I can't tell if they became all of those things or they were intended to just be all of those things. Carol Clover was, like, the first person to write this, like, Men, Win Men Women, and Chainsaws, which was this deeply feminist lens for slasher that is misogynistic. And we are able to have these, like, very rich conversations about gender roles and feminism and inclusivity and intersectionality, yeah etc etc about these movies and as we've like also said they weren't made to be that like halloween was not made to say anything i don't think halloween was made to say anything good about women i think that what's cool about thinking and brains and analysis so you can look back at something completely rip it away from the intention and make a new observation about it. The same thing comes up for me with Scream every time I watch it too. It's like, it's hard to say which direction it's going, right? Is the movie just reflecting back what it sees in the rest of the world? Which direction is the influence flowing? And I feel like it's the same question all of these movies and how they represent women. I feel like it's way more telling about the time that they came out of. That if that's how you can write about a woman because that's how you think about a woman, then that's just because that's what that time condoned yeah. women to be. Yeah. 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 I think that's so beautifully said. And I think that, like, we cannot ignore that while these movies are reflection of the time and this conversation is a reflection of our time mm -hmm. and it is it's we can try our best to try to figure out like whether this came from that or whether a trope emerged or is being commented on but we can't really know and i think that i don't think that they could have known when they released this almost 30 years no ago way. that in 30 years no way there would be a group of people trying to understand it. It didn't, I don't think they made any of these movies thinking that's what would happen. I don't think they made, they definitely did not make Texas Chainsaw thinking that there would be very stimulating conversations or even a book called Men, Women, and Chainsaws written oh X God. many years yeah. later. Do you the know? 1990s teen horror cycle. Yeah, I just don't think anybody was aware. Then when you're like constrained by the year that you're in and the year that yeah. something's made, you don't, you have no idea what it's yeah. going to look like down the line. And of course that, like, each film doesn't have any idea what's coming next, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that, like, drawing connections between what has happened in subsequent years and the movie is any less, like, true or valuable. And I think that's amazing that while they didn't know what's going to happen next, like, still there are things within those movies that are of value to understand today. I think, I think Wes Craven also actually really subscribes to this belief, too, that the best thing about horror movies is that they really are a blank canvas. They aren't really rules, and you can do absolutely mm. anything. Like, you can challenge any issue, any social norm. You can do whatever you want with horror movies because the whole point is that you're meant to be surprised and you're meant to be like pulled away from the world into a, another one. That horror allows for creativity in the way that no other genre does and that's what's so special is it's so symbolic, it's so metaphorical, it exists in the real world but in the different reality of it and it's it creates space for yeah just a lot of like different takeaways and room to, to make your own conclusions about and interpret in different ways. I also just want to say Ski Ulrich 
so handsome. So hot. He's really a good-looking guy. So hot, and he gets hotter with age. I I love him. See, I don't understand why you took issue with me saying that. Michael Myers. Michael Myers was hot. If you think Billy's hot, I'm allowed to think Michael Myers is hot. I think Michael Myers is also, at least in the first one, he was handsome. Okay, but Billy, like, Michael Myers is wearing a mask. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to look at him. Except for one second, off, yeah. He is handsome. He has uh, something weird going on with one of his eyes, but uh, aside from that. Is he Ulrich? His, like, ratty, like, white shirt. There's something about it that's he just looks, so... He just looks unbathed. Every boy <laughs> I've ever so met greasy. has that white shirt. Yeah, but you're, I feel like you're supposed to wear... Uh, it's supposed to be an undershirt. He just wears it. it. I think Dewey is the hottest one in this movie, and I'm willing to stand behind, behind that. Dewey's He's the one I want to kiss the most. Dud. Billy's a dud. <laughs> Billy's a murderer, Camille. Should we wrap up? Yeah. Should we end? I feel yeah. like this... We're wrapped. We've wrapped Aww. up. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. Stream horror. Stream scream. And stream scream queens, too. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening up until this point, for being with us on this journey. Um, Follow us on Instagram at wearescaredpod.com so that you can relive the joys of season one and stay tuned for potential more content from us. If you have questions, concerns, thoughts, compliments, email us. We are scaredpod at gmail.com. Um, and again, we just all really want to thank you so much for listening to what we have to say. I hope you have a day full of fear, but the good kind of fear. Thank you.